just how long those notes might be. Uh, sometimes I will say to Laura on Saturday night, you know, I think this is going to be a short one tomorrow. And she just goes, sure, sure it is. And I get up and maybe it's 10 minutes longer than I anticipated. And there have been other weeks where I thought, wow, this is a long one. It's a lot of notes. And then we get up and it's 1125 and go, all right, that's it. What do I do? Pray for a really long time. Give them their money's worth. Never have I so egregiously misjudged exactly how long it would take to work through the notes than last week when we got about halfway through and I looked up at the clock and it was a quarter till noon. And so what I'm going to do, coming back through the passage this week, is recap kind of quickly what we talked about just a little bit in the front half of Hebrews chapter 6 and then slow down about halfway through and we get to what we would have gotten to if we had been able to work fully through the passage. Of course, we started in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll work through verse 12 this morning. And this is what is recorded for us by the author, starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's our thesis for the week. Let's go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, or ablutions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk in the rain and then often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Uh, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your works and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You can see if you attach the very beginning of chapter 6 and where we ended there in verse 12, what the author is driving at. He says, let's press on to maturity. And the way that we press on to maturity in the eyes of Barnabas or whoever it is that wrote this particular book is we continue to do the things that we have been called to do in faithfulness and obedience to the very end. We hold on to this assurance so that we won't be sluggish, but passionate, so that we won't fall behind, but we're always moving forward and in growing into Christ's likeness and faithfulness and in obedience. Really, the author of Hebrews is only asking two questions. The whole book boils down to two things. If you are discovered to have a fatal condition and you go to the doctor and the doctor says there is only one cure what I want to know is one does it work and two can I do it 
Now, the author of Hebrews tells us what the malady is that has afflicted every person who has ever been born. It's sin. You are living in rebellion in opposition to a, a holy and loving God. And God in his holiness will not allow unrighteousness to live in his eternal and glorious presence. He will not allow it. And so you must be cured of your sin. And the cure for sin is Christ. Christ's perfection is imputed to us and our sin is dealt with by him all of it at his cross so that by his death we may die to sin and by his resurrection we might rise again to new life in him and thus live with a holy God because when he looks at us he sees all the things not that we've done but that his son the perfect one the holy one the better sacrifice what he's done and so the author of Hebrews is asking those same two questions. Is there a cure? Yes, the cure is Christ, and it works. Uh, sometimes you've maybe seen an infomercial, and somebody is selling something, uh, take this pill and all your hair will grow back, or take this pill and you can continue to eat uh, 5,000 calories a day, but you're going to lose weight, or take this pill and all of a sudden you'll be a marathon runner, and none of those actually work. We know those things don't work. Christ, Christ works. Your problem is sin. Christ is the cure. Sure and steady, you can be guaranteed of that very thing. So that's the first question he asks and answers. The second question he asks is, if you know that is the cure, then how come you have walked away? How come you've chosen sure death over life in Christ? Now I'm sure almost everybody in this room has met someone who has battled cancer. Some of you have personally battled cancer. And um, I've spent some time with those who have, and as you have too, I'm sure you've seen this. They're diagnosed, and it's terrifying. But you meet someone, they've been diagnosed, and the doctor says, this is an awful, malicious, angry, vile disease. But this one is treatable. This one we know. We know what to do. We know what can be done. We are confident that if you will adhere to the regimen, you will live. And so they go in. Maybe there's a surgery, and it's followed by chemo and radiation. It poisons the cancer. It's also terribly difficult on the rest of your body. Now, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, now, now, here's the path. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to perform the surgery. There's going to be so many rounds of chemo and so many treatments of radiation. It's going to take six months or 12 months or 18 months, but when we get through, we are exceedingly confident that you will come through on the other side unscathed. You'll live. You will survive. You may very well have a long and prosperous life. Somebody goes in and, and they say, you know, that surgery was really hard. And they get their first round of chemo, the first dose of radiation, and they say, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. This is really, really hard. I, I know that, that new life is guaranteed, but I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to what I did before. This is what the author of Hebrews looks at a person like that and says, I'm sorry, don't you understand that this is the only cure for what is killing you? Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be virtually unbearable, but you're not alone. He is with you. The cure is with you. Christ is with you. 
And Christ is the only way to guarantee that you will depart from this life and land at the side of the God who loves you. Carry on. We know it's hard. We know it's difficult. We know it can be draining. We know it can be immensely more than you perceive that you can handle. But there is no other way to live. And you'll find all along the way that Christ is with you. You can survive. You can endure. He will help you. Carry on. Don't give up now. Pursue the cure to the very, very end. Can Christ cure me? Yes, he can. And so he then asked the question, why are some of you abandoning your only hope in this world? And going back to something that you know will ultimately lead to your eternal destruction. Well, of course, it's a difficult passage, and uh, I have enjoyed <laughs> spending time in this passage. I know that may seem an odd thing to say. Uh, it has also been an incredibly humbling passage. I hope that as you have read along over the last couple of weeks and tried to sort through the details for yourself, and I would encourage you to do so, I would encourage you, and uh, I mean this as strenuously as I can say it, to never take my word for it. I will do my very best to guide you through the passage, but you have the same spirit in you that I have in me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you own the word, read the word, study the word, and let the spirit guide you as he would. And let's do that in humility, because there are an awful lot of scholars, a lot smarter than myself, who have reached a different conclusion than I have. I want to give you three different options here for how to interpret this passage. And again, we talked about these at length last week. We won't have the opportunity to do so extraneously this morning. But a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. Three main views on how to interpret this passage. The first is that the author is speaking there in verse 4 of those who have fallen away as believers who have lost their salvation. Now, we immediately ruled that out last week. We know from having invested ourselves in studying the Bible that it is impossible for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been justified, who have been redeemed, who have been adopted, who have had imputed righteousness to them, who are being sanctified to be unadopted and unjustified and unsanctified. It's impossible. There's, there's no more way that you could lose your salvation that is, unless you could go back in history and uncrucify the Christ. And we know that from passages like this one. This is from uh, John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or I love this, this comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by, operative phrase here, God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You cannot lose something guarded by God himself. It's yours, eternal, kept in the heavenly places. Go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And this is a phrase that we find here in verse 12 that repeats itself in, I think, 9 and again in 10. 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who has found the only salvation possible, that is dependence on him, that this is a salvation granted by Christ alone, through what he's done, it can't be removed from you. All of the sins paid for by Christ are forgotten by the Father forever, forever and ever and ever. Option number two. It was written to believers. It was written to believers, and these are a group of believers who at some point just said, you know what? Yeah, I assent to all of these things about Christ. I am aware of the verities of the deity of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and all of that, but you know what? It's exhausting, and I just don't want to do it anymore. And so there's a group of believers, saved, justified, redeemed, adopted, and at some point they said, you know what? I'm, I'm out. I'm just going to hit the pause button and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to do that to the very end. And, and God will know that uh, he punched my card years and years ago. And so I, uh, I know that I'm safe there, but I'm going to live however I want to live. Now, now, I know that you've seen this before. And uh, we don't believe that this is actually possible. And there are a couple of reasons why. But I know that you've seen this because you've met people and they were seven years old and they grew up in such and such a church, and there was a day that they were particularly moved, and their Sunday school teacher or their mom and dad or their pastor knelt beside them, and they prayed the sinner's prayer, right? And, and then uh, they got to high school, and, and they started, you know, waffling on this whole thing. That, that they had made this profession years ago, and they kind of cling to that, but they don't go to church anymore. They have no interest in reading the Bible. They've never spent a moment in prayer, and by the time they get to college, they've completely abandoned the faith altogether. And they find in conversations with their mother and their father at Christmas time that, that they really more identify now as agnostic or even atheist, and they don't know exactly how it all works. But if there is a God, they all must be the same God, and all paths equally lead up to the top of the mountain of holiness and love. And there are moms and dads who are consoling themselves, and I don't mean to rob anyone of this, except to say what scripture says, which is those folks, it would appear, have not endured. That it is not what we do in that moment that changes us. It's what Christ did and is doing. That the saints of Christ are preserved by Christ and bear fruit to the very end. There are passages like 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 that talk about the negative aspect of this, that those who walked away from us were never really a part of us. And then there are passages that state it more positively, like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I believe that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We know from Hebrews chapter 3 that those who follow him who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ that they will hold fast to the very end in John 15 we know that those who follow him follow him because they remain in him to the very end this doesn't mean that you earn your salvation it does mean that we can tell, looking back from the end of your life all the way to the beginning, that you were a faithful follower of Jesus Christ because there was fruit. We follow the evidence. 
and the evidence allows us to infer they must have been a follower of Jesus because they followed him from the beginning to the end. Now, there are times, days, seasons, months, maybe even years of your life where it'll be two steps forward and one step back. But the overall trajectory of the life of the believer is that they are growing in Christ-likeness, that they are growing in faith, and that they are growing in obedience. So I don't love that option. The one that I've given you is this. I think this passage was written to professing believers. Professing believers. People who, there in the early assembly, all said, yeah, you know, Jesus, we like him. We like him a lot, sure. Now, some would follow through on that. Some would carry through to the very end. Some would follow him and live in obedience and live in faithfulness and find that their security is dependent on Christ's work and not their work. But the author writes knowing that others may prove faithless and disobedient and abandon Christ and turn back to the Judaism that they grew up in. So the people who read this letter, some of them would have found it really encouraging and comforting, but others would have found that it shatters the false confidence that they have in the Judaism of their fathers and mothers. So here we are. I don't want to recount everything, but we know that from the very first verses here, he tells us, here's the goal. We want to leave behind the elementary things and move on to the really intense things. And he says, I feel like I haven't been able to do that yet because you're not ultra familiar with the word. I, I wish that we could move on to things like this discussion of Melchizedek. And some of you remember from before Christmas when we talked about Melchizedek, that is the deep end of the pool, right? And he says, oh, I'm so frustrated that we have to talk about these elementary things. And then he stops himself and goes, no, 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 we're not going to do it. We're going to keep going on. You have refused to learn how to doggy paddle. And so the way in which I will teach you to swim is I'm going to walk you off to the high dive and throw you uh, butt overhead into the deep water. And in this way, you'll learn how to swim. Melchizedek is probably the high dive of theology here in the New Testament. <laughs> we'll come back to him next week. But he says, I don't want to retrace all of these things, all of these things that you already assented to in Judaism, right? You already knew about dead works and faith toward God. You knew about washings. You, you knew about the laying on of hands. You knew about the resurrection. You knew about eternal judgment. You were already in on all of those things in your past as Jews. We've got to move on to new things. We've got to move on to Christian things. We've got to move on to things that are distinctive of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. He says it's no longer okay that the totality of the things to which you ascend are the exact same things that every Jew on the planet would ascend to. We've got to move on to Jesus things, to a better covenant, to a better mediator, to a better sacrifice. And they would have heard that as a new covenant, a new mediator, a new sacrifice. We have to retain the old and absorb the new. And they really haven't done that very well. And he says in verse 3, that's what we're going to do if God permits. Now, here's what happens in verse 4, the most contentious passage in the Bible. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have done these things. And you're going to see these participles work themselves out here. Four things. It's impossible for those people who have experienced these things to be restored again. So, so here are some people, and they have experienced some things. It's impossible for those people who have experienced those things and then have fallen away. That is, they have lived in rejection of Christ. They are apostate. 
it is impossible, at least from a human perspective, to draw those apostates back again. To draw them back would necessitate re-crucifying Jesus all over again, and we're not about that. That's impossible. It's ludicrous. It's asinine. That's not what we're about. You can't do that. So here's what I'm left with reasonably here, that there are a group of people who experienced these incredible things and then at some point said, you know, we have walked away. We are not following Jesus. We're going back to the elementary things. Those things were safe. Those things were familiar. And, and yes, maybe like rejecting the cure, they will ultimately kill me, but I'd rather choose death than following Jesus Christ. Four things. What, what was true of them? They had once been enlightened. They had once been enlightened. It's hard to know exactly what is meant here. It could be general enlightenment. Uh, you remember in our uh, examination of John chapter 1, Jesus is the light of the world, and he's coming, and he's given light to all men. And then in verse 9, the very next verse, and the men saw the light, and many of his own people still did not receive him. Is it possible in this general way to have been enlightened, to have received the light of Jesus Christ, and still at some point to reject him as the light? Absolutely it is. It really is. So that could be a possibility here of what's happening. That there's a general enlightenment by the incarnation of Jesus Christ rejected by those who have seen the light and have chosen for themselves the darkness. Again, that's a theme that occurs a lot in the stuff that John writes. It could be, and some New Testament scholars have said this, that the phrase here, having once been enlightened, is a reference to baptism. Here's a group of people who were baptized. Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's verse 14. Uh, borrows a phrase from an ancient Christian song about enlightenment being codified here through baptism, that baptism is an enlightening experience for the believer. Here's a group of people who potentially, he says, uh, have been baptized. Secondly, they have tasted the heavenly gift. This could very well be a reference to communion, right? They have been brought into the assembly. They have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Right? They have had hands laid on them by the apostles for the impartation of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Maybe they have done incredible things. But while they were professing believers, they were not enduring believers. At some point, they just gave up. They quit. They decided to go back. I don't want to do it anymore. It's too hard. It's too weird. It's too un-Jewish. I don't want any part of it. Is that really possible? Is it really possible for all of these things to have been true of someone and for them not to have been a real, authentic believer? I do think it's possible having once been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, how many have you seen in your own life and they've come in here and they have been absolutely zealous and they have apparently repented of their sins and we take them into the baptistry and we baptize them in like good non-denominational Baptists, right? They are submerged into the water and brought back out and then we bring them out here into the sanctuary and we offer them communion. Here is the body and blood of Jesus Christ in remembrance of the work that he did at the cross. And then a few years go by 
and they're never to be seen again. The fire and the smoke and the thunder seemingly extinguished in a malaise of unfaithfulness and disbelief. Shared in the Holy Spirit. I, I don't understand. How could someone share in the Holy Spirit have had hands laid on them by the apostles and done wondrous things and really not have been a real believer? I think about in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we're introduced to a figure named Simon Magus. You remember him? Simon the magician. And, and he states in no uncertain terms that he believes and he's baptized and presumably uh, Peter or one of the other apostles lays hands on him and he starts to perform wondrous things and then he, he starts seeing how the other apostles have super apostolic-like power, and he offers to pay them for a, a progression up the deal there, right? Take me up the ladder of power. I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. And Peter rebukes him and says, you don't have any idea what this faith is all about. And, and Simon then, it appears later, as we find in anecdotal church history, becomes one of the greatest oppressors of the early church in the first century. Or think about someone who has, uh, he says here, tasted the goodness of the word of God. There is nobody in the Gospels who apparently for a very short period of time loves hearing the preaching and teaching of the word of God more than Herod the Great. If you ask Herod, hey, do you like preaching? He'd go, oh, I got this guy. His name is John. They call him the baptizer. He's incredible. You've got to come hear this guy preach. And he tastes repeatedly the word of God and then at some point decides it's not for me and has John's head taken off. Uh, if you really don't like the sermon this morning, let me encourage you, write the angry email, but let me keep my head, okay? <laughs> Could someone really be that close to Christ and still walk away? How is, it in, how is it not immediately that we think of someone like Judas Iscariot, who was as close to Christ as someone could have been, taught by Christ himself, discipled by Christ himself, Engineered as a disciple under the auspices of the Savior and Creator of the universe and decides to walk away. It's an egregious thing. Now, what does falling away really mean? Well, I would rule out that falling away means that you can lose your salvation. We've already talked about that. I don't think there's much need to go back and rehash it except to say that God holds you in his hands. Not even you could jump out of them. You're not stronger than he is. The strength that he provides to hold you secure is strength eternal and infinite. I don't think it means that you can lose your testimony or your witness. I think the actual message of the New Testament is that the saints will persevere to the very end, preserved by God. I'm, I'm left then to deduce that here's what that phrase means, to walk away, to fall away. That the unbeliever at some point chooses to harden their heart beyond human repair. In fact, the author of Hebrews talks about this as an option in Hebrews chapter 3. That you can choose to harden your heart so that there is no human on earth who could plead with you. There is no pastor so persuasive. There is no philosopher so intense. There is no theologian so rational nor overwhelming 
who could draw you back from that. Could God? God can do whatever God so deems in his sovereignty. But from a human perspective, there is none who can draw them back. They have chosen apostasy. That is the volition of their hearts. You say that, that seems tenuous. Um, I think the illustration that follows there in verse 7 lends credence to this idea that it's of a, a believer who has chosen perdition. He talks about a land that has drunk up the rain. It, it's gotten everything it needs, the light, the water, etc. And some bears fruit. And you'll remember that this is a, an analogy that Jesus has himself used about seeds falling on different kinds of soil. Um, we could probably charge our author here in Hebrews 6 of plagiarizing Jesus. Right? He's stolen his intellectual property. Uh, you see, there are some fields that when they receive water and, and they re are nurtured by their masters, here, they produce great and grand fruit, and so they are blessed. And that is a loaded term there. They are blessed. But there are others, and the rain falls on it, and, and they produce a whole lot of stuff. They pursue uh, thorns and, and thistles. That's what they produce. In the response, they are cursed. That is deeply evocative of a very early chapter in the Bible. Can you think of that? Uh, a garden that was blessed and fruitful, that out of the disobedience of man was then cursed to uh, be thorns and thistles in the earth, right? This is, this is Genesis 3.17 manifesting itself all over again. A world that has been cursed. A, a believer cannot be cursed. You understand that? Christ became a curse for believers so that they could not be cursed. This is an unbeliever who has chosen the curse over the Christ. And it says here that what we do with fields like that, what we do with those accursed, what we do with those who are all thorns and thistles, they're burned. Now, it, it is true. There is the occasional usage in the Bible of burning language as refining language, like a precious metal that's set into the fire and all of the dross rises to the top and you clean it away and you get a purer gold. Now, let me tell you, 10 to 1 in the New Testament the use of fire is the demonstration of one who has been set apart from Christ forever. In, in fact, I think it's here in Hebrews chapter 12, if you go to the end of the chapter, where we find uh, the reference there, uh, 28, 29, something like that, where the author uses the illustration of the kingdom of God like a city with great walls that can never be torn down. And he says, isn't it great that we have received a salvation in this city which nothing can destroy? And, and he's not talking about it being assailed from the outside by uh, sinners, by pagans, by those opposed to God. Because he says in the next verse, I think it's 29, because our God is a consuming fire. God has given us a salvation that is so secure that even the Father cannot tear it down, nor would he ever because his character is immutable. This is the way that the author of Hebrews, and overwhelmingly the authors of the New Testament, talk about fire. Fire is destruction. Fire is punishment. Fire is wrath reserved for those who reject Jesus. These have chosen to harden their hearts. They will be consumed by our God himself, the consumer, the fire. 
Well, that's cheerful, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people in the room, particularly I know like Michelle House and others who are raised in Pentecostal churches who are going, well, of course the intent of this passage is to make me question at my very core whether or not I'm actually a follower of Jesus Christ. Talk about an anxiety-inducing passage. I'm shaking here. Can you give me something? Well, now the author of Hebrews anticipates that. He knows. He knows what he's just said. He knows the force and the tenacity and the depth of what he's just said. And so he follows it up here in verse 9. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, and you see that the tense chase uh, the, the tense uh, cases have changed here. Uh, in, in verses 4 and 6, he was talking about those and, and them, and he's pointing his finger to outside the camp. And then he comes back. He reverts back in verse 9. Yet in your case, beloved, us, you, very personal pronoun usage here, though we speak in, the, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to not insecurity, but things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your works. Again, he's not saying there that you earn your salvation, but if works are the fruit that prove you are who you say you are, God sees those things, and he sees your love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. You may think there of John chapter 14 that uh, my sheep love me, and I know that they love me because they obey my commands. Your love and obedience for who I am and what I've called you to do is very evident to the Lord. For God is not so unjust. And so in verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Can I know that I'm a believer? Can I know that I will be held secure? Can I have assurance of my salvation? He not only says you can, he says you should. It's an imperative. Hold on to that assurance so that you may not be sluggish because it's assurance that is going to keep you passionate for Jesus Christ. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And now we're already skipping over to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 because we're cultivating a list now of those who because of that assurance, because of that confidence, because of the rock-hard hope that was invested in each one of them, they persevered to the very end and received as inheritance those promises once given through Jesus Christ. I remember being a kid. I had to be about seven or eight years old, right there around maybe second or third grade. And I'm sure almost everyone in this room did the exact same thing. We'd have a tornado drill. Did you ever go through that? And, and we had a big uh, shelf of, it uh, had to be encyclopedias or something there on the side of the room, and you'd hear the siren, and they'd run the drill. And we'd walk over, and we'd grab an encyclopedia, right? And we'd go out into the hallway, and we'd kneel down with our, you know, little butts sticking out into the middle of the hallway, and our heads tucked down into the corner, and I'd have that encyclopedia, and you'd hold it over the back of your neck, right? This is what we had to do in preparing for the tornado drill. And it, we'd, we'd hold real still. And I remember our teacher telling us, now look, if you don't do this and, and the windows uh, are, are blown out of the building and the doors at the end of the hallways are torn off and the wind sweeps through here violently, if you don't hunker down and, and cover the most vulnerable parts of yourself, you might be injured, you might be carried away. But none of you are going to do that, are you? 
None of my good little students are going to do that. I am sure that you're going to do exactly what I have instructed you to do. I know you. I believe in you. I have confidence in you. Are we going to be okay? Yes, you're going to be okay. I know that you're going to be okay. Just do what I've told you to do. This is a passage meant to inspire confidence. In fact, Hebrews invests a lot of time encouraging us about this confidence. He says in verse 11, And so we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope to the very end. In verse 18b, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope, the hope set before us. In chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And later in that same chapter, he says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Has he just laid out one of the most devastating warning passages in the whole New Testament? You bet he has. There are dire consequences for those who walk away. But it is enveloped in confidence. He starts there, he rests there in the middle, and he finishes there. You can know. You can know the new covenant of the cure for your sin is a covenant that will actually work. God's promises are secured by God's character. The sacrifice is perfect. The priest is holy. The king is righteous. The message is pure. The refuge is secure. The blood is all-sufficient, and the anchor will hold. You will endure to the very end. Because even when you are, as Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, even when you are faithless, he is faithful. Three things I want you to walk away with this morning. Three things. One, there should be an urgent sense for every believer in this room that there is no standing still in the Christian life. Um, like the old movie says, you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, either we are persevering toward greater faith and holiness or we are drifting backward toward hardness and destruction. Simultaneously, we must have an equally strong and urgent sense that this perseverance is to be pursued with the full assurance that we will inherit the promises because of the faithfulness of God. An urgent confidence that he will bring it to pass. And finally, if I were encouraging you to do anything, to have an action step, something that you can tangibly put your hands on over the next couple of days, it would be this. And I'm going to go ahead and invite our worship team to come forward, and they're going to lead us in just a moment through a song where we reflect these truths. There are three things that will help you grow in the Christian life. Uh, there may be others, but there are three that we come back to over and over again. Three that will change you more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Number one, spend time in prayer. 
And I'll admit to you right out of the gate here that these are totally unoriginal, right? Nothing novel in what's being said here, and I guarantee they absolutely work. I love that line from Remember the Titans when he's talking about the playbook. He says, the plays are just like Novocaine. Give enough time, it always works. Same of these. Prayer works. Prayer will draw you into maturity. Prayer will help you persevere. Prayer will take you to the very end. Secondly, read the word. Hold fast to the word. Feast on the word. Cling to the word. If you want to know how to endure, if you want to know how to carry on to the very end, you'll find the strength and the confidence in this book. What we tell ourselves is frightening. What the Word tells us is sobering and comforting. Pray, read the Bible, and thirdly, spend time with other mature believers. Spend time with people who have carried through hard times, whose faith has been rattled, who has had to live through hard things, and yet who has endured. Maybe not unscathed. Maybe they've had to take some steps back. But the overall trajectory of their life is one of faithfulness and confidence in the promises and faithfulness of God. And, and I'll tell you, this is one of the most encouraging things that you could ever possibly do. Call someone up and, and say, let me buy you a cup of coffee. I'm going through a hard time. I think maybe you did one time too and you made it how do I get through to the other side that's really what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about he's told them throughout the entire book hold on carry on it's going to be okay and then he gives them a whole chapter of messed up ruinous people who often did the wrong thing but were carried through by the power of Christ because in all the various storms of their unbelief and faithfulness and disobedience, they found that God, the great and grand and holy and just and loving and gracious anchor, 